I want to take this opportunity to welcome all of you to our Good Friday service and the message that I'm calling Good Friday, the day that changed the world. Now, about 10 years ago, I did a Good Friday service with that title, and I decided to Google it to see what secular folks thought was the day that changed the world. As you can imagine, the number one hit was 9-11-2001. And granted, that day changed the world in a very profound way for the bad. Good Friday has changed the world in a profound way for the better. That's the great understatement of all time, yes. right? Yes. Now, as a teenager, I can still remember that day when Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. The day was, Jan was July 21st, 1969. Right after Armstrong stepped onto the moon, Richard Nixon, the President of the United States, went on TV and said, and I quote, this is the greatest day in the history of the world. Man has conquered space. Well, the next day, Billy Graham <laughs> came out publicly and refuted that statement by saying, yesterday was not the greatest day in the history of the world. There have been at least three others that have been greater. The birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Good Friday is one day in a trilogy of days that God used to change the world in a way uh, really only believers in Jesus Christ can appreciate. Now, as we turn to the Gospels, and I'm not going to have you do that, I'm just saying metaphorically, as we turn to the Gospels, okay, because I'm not going to be picking out any one thing. We'll jump around. But as we turn to the Gospels, the day that Jesus was crucified started out pretty much like any other day, except this was Passover. So Jerusalem was waking up with a holiday spirit, okay, which was a, a combination, a mixture of both excitement and anticipation. You have to understand that Passover is one of the three major feast of the Jewish year. It was back then and still is today a big deal. In fact, back then we know, as today, it draws Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's the desire of every Jewish person to spend at least one Passover in Jerusalem, a life uh, goal, really, for many. Very important day, and of course, Jerusalem was waking up with that holiday spirit, you know, and just anticipating and excited about the day. Well, Pilate, on his way to work that morning, you know, no doubt Starbucks in hand, uh, was thinking to himself, probably, you know, with every Jew in town preoccupied with the Passover, uh, maybe this will be an easy and uneventful day for me. Little did he realize that nothing could have been further from the truth. Because as Pilate walked to his judgment seat to start his day, there waiting for him was a group of Jewish leaders with a prisoner in tow. Now, Pilate immediately recognized the prisoner as Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. These Jewish leaders were waiting for Pilate. His court opened at sunrise, and they were already there waiting for him because they wanted to make sure that theirs was the first case he adjudicated that day. They wanted to get this over with as quickly as they could. Now, at this point, Pilate didn't realize that Jesus had already been put through a religious trial at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where some of the leaders of Israel had met and determined that Jesus was a blasphemer and therefore worthy of death. 
But you see, they didn't have the authority to carry out that death sentence. For that, they would need Pilate. However, one thing these Jewish leaders knew, there was no way that Pilate would ever convict Jesus of a capital crime on religious grounds, on matters regarding Jewish law. They knew that. So they manufactured three political charges against him that they knew the Roman government would take very seriously. Not one, but three. They wanted to make sure that, you know, they got this thing done. The three charges were these. First of all, that he was a revolutionary who posed a threat to the empire. Number two, that he urged people not to pay taxes, therefore undermining the prosperity of the empire. And number three, he claimed to be a king therefore threatening the power and position of the emperor himself. Now, as you read the Gospels, Pilate chose to focus on that third charge, that Jesus claimed to be a king, because this was the most serious of the three charges that had been leveled against Jesus. Now, anyone who has studied this civil trial knows it was a joke, almost as big a joke as the religious trial, which had taken place earlier at the house of Caiaphas. In that trial, practically every Jewish law regarding the legal way to conduct a trial had been violated. Jewish law said the trial was not to be held at night. They held this at night. Jewish law said that uh, the witnesses against the defendant had to agree. They didn't agree. Uh, the Jewish law said that the defendant couldn't testify against himself. The high priest at one point uh, put Jesus under oath and made him testify against himself. Also, Jewish law said the whole Sanhedrin, the whole Jewish Supreme Council, had to be gathered together, all of them. That wasn't the case. They rushed this thing, you know, and uh, not everybody that was a member of the Jewish High Council was there. The trial at Caiaphas was illegal in every way, a, a real kangaroo court. At least Pilate, who knew Jesus was being railroaded, Gospels tell us that, he knew they were delivering him up because of envy. So he knew that they were real, trying to railroad Jesus, and at least Pilate tried to let him go free. At one point, pronouncing him innocent uh, in John 18, 38, when he said, I find no fault at all in him. But by this time, the Jewish leadership in their lust for Jesus' blood would have no talk of Jesus' innocence or any talk of Pilate's desire to, to let him go free. They were like, at this point, uh, sharks that smelled blood in the water. And all they wanted to do was see Jesus crucified. There was no two ways around it. They weren't going to negotiate. That was why they were there, and their minds were made up. So they pressured Pilate to execute Jesus, or else they would turn Pilate into Caesar as one who was aiding and abetting a man who claimed to be a king instead of Caesar, which was treason. Treason. Well, Pilate was caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. So finally, he washes his hands in protest and disgust, and then ordered the execution of Jesus the Christ. And so by 9 a.m. that morning, Jesus was hanging on, a, on the cross, where he hung for the next six hours in excruciating, agonizing pain. As the shadow on the sundial touched 3 p.m., we read in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, that Jesus said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he dismissed his spirit.
When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying that the work of redemption was done. The payment for humanity's sin was now complete. You see, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God said this to his people. He said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, that Hebrew word for atonement is a word that literally means to cover, to cover. But the blood of animals could only temporarily cover their sins so that they could have fellowship with God for a time until they committed another sin, they would have to bring then another animal sacrifice. The blood of animals could only temporarily cover sin. Listen, it could not pay the price for sin and take sin away once and for all. That would take the blood of the sinless Lamb of God, who would finally pay for and remove completely the stain of sin forever from the human race. Exactly as John the Baptist said when he first introduced Jesus to the crowd back in John chapter 1, verse 29. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. In fact, when Jesus said, it is finished, in the Greek he said, tetelestai. Tetelestai could be translated paid in full. Or, excuse me, could be trans it is finished, but it also could be translated paid in full. Paid in full. And guys, this gets into something that Paul the Apostle alluded to in Colossians chapter 2. You might as well turn there. Colossians 2. Most of you know where I'm going. But let's look over it again. All of this, Jesus saying from the cross paid in full gets into something that Paul the Apostle alluded to in Colossians 2 verse 14 when he said having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross what is Paul talking about Paul is talking about something John alludes to or states openly in Revelation chapter 20, where every one of us has a ledger. Think of an accountant who, accountant who has a ledger. And in that ledger, he writes or she writes all the debt that people owe to that person. They, all the things that people have purchased and they have financed or whatever, is, goes in the ledger. This is a record of all the, the debt that a person has. Each one of us has a ledger. And God keeps meticulous records. In his ledger is a, uh, is a compiling of all the sins, all the ways we have ever violated or will ever violate the law of God in thought, in word, and in deed are written in this ledger. Yet Paul says he took it, nailed it to his cross, and took it out of the way. This gets into something that, of course, Paul the Apostle would have known very well. Something that we have talked about on numerous occasions. And that was in that culture at that time, if a person committed a crime, was arrested and tried, and found guilty. They would write his crime or crimes on a piece of parchment and nail it to his dungeon door. After he had paid for those crimes, 
they would take that piece of parchment and on the bottom they would write to Telestai, paid in full, roll it up and give it to him. That was his protection against double jeopardy, where he could never again be tried and convicted and have to pay for crimes he had already paid for. He had already paid his debt to society, as we would say, right? And so they would roll up this piece of parchment, give it to him. He would always keep it on his person so that if anyone ever questioned whether or not he had paid for his crimes, he would take it, roll it out, and it would say, to Telestine the bottom, paid in full. Paul is saying that Jesus took all the handwritings of all the sins that were against us, right? Things that we had did violating God's law, and he took all these things and he nailed it to his cross. He paid our debt with his own blood. And before he died, Jesus from the cross once again said, it is finished, to Telestine paid in full. Guys, if a person wants to, uh, refuses to accept what Jesus did on Calvary's cross and paying for their sins, well, they're going to have to at one point stand before God someday and be sentenced by him to pay for their own crimes. Now, at this point, a lot of people who are clueless will say, well, that's fine. I, I, I'm not afraid to stand before God. I, I'm a good person. And I know that when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him all the good things I did over the course of my life. You know, what a great person I was. And I know he'll be fair with me and let me into heaven. You know, an old preacher that I love, J. Vernon McGee, who's with the Lord now, he commented on that thinking that people, and they're out there. A lot of folks actually think this way. He said, and I quote, yes, my friend, you will be able to get a fair trial there. Your life is on tape, and Jesus Christ, the judge, happens to have the tape. I think he will have it on a television screen, like a jumbotron, I guess, so that you can watch it too. This was your life back in his day. It was a famous program. This is your life? Okay, he's, he's picking up on that. This was your life. Do you think your life can stand the test? Are you willing to stand before God and have him play the tape of your entire life? I don't know about you, but I could not make it. Thank God for his grace. Then he quotes Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. But, but here's something else that maybe some of you have never thought of, maybe you've never heard. I know if you're a regular here at Calvary, you've heard me say this before. Folks say, well, when I go stand before God, you know, and I die and I stand before him, um, I, I'm going to plead my case. I'm going to bring all the evidence of what a great person I was. I know God will let me into heaven. Here's the problem. Besides the fact you're not a good person, I'm not, nobody is. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All right, so, you know. But what they don't understand is that they think they're going to stand before God someday and plead their case, present their case to the judge of the whole universe. They don't understand that the Bible says their case has already been decided. The verdict was pronounced in the Garden of Eden. The children of Adam are guilty. All of Adam's kids. The Bible says, in Adam, 
all die. Why? Every one of us has been born a descendant of Adam. God made Adam and Eve perfect, but when they blew it, they became fallen sinners. Fallen sinners can't give birth to perfect people because the sin nature is passed from the father to the children. We were all born with a fallen sin nature. We're all sinners. Some call it original sin. Call it whatever your will. But in the Garden of Eden, God pronounced the verdict, guilty. All the children of Adam are guilty and therefore are bound to spend eternity in hell. And then, of course, every day people live, they add to that guilt by continuing to break the commandments of God. And then at the, wake, the, at the white, at great white throne judgment, the final judgment, this is what we think of, we think of judgment day, okay? The great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. People are going to um, stand before the Lord, unbelievers. This is not for any Christians. This is a, 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 a judgment of unbelievers. Many of whom, by the way, think they're Christians. So a lot of folks think they're Christians and heaven-bound. Why? Because I'm not an atheist or a Muslim. So by default, I, I'm a Christian, right? We're a Christian nation. Everybody born in America is pretty much Christian. Well, again, that's a lie of the devil. But at the great white throne judgment, people are not going to plead their case because, again, the case has already been decided and the verdict has already been rendered. They're guilty. So what is going to happen? Well, at the great white throne judgment, they're not going to plead their case. Case is over. This is going to be the sentencing phase. You know how it is in our, our court system? You, you, you stand trial for something. If you're, if you're found guilty, usually the judge has you taken back to your cell, and then somewhere down the road, I don't know, a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, I don't know, you come back for the sentencing phase. That's what the great white throne judgment is. It's not pleading your case. The case has already been decided. You're guilty. But at the great white throne judgment, you will receive your punishment. Uh, it, you, you're, it's your sentence. Now, the Bible does say very clearly that there are degrees of punishment in hell, depending on how much you knew. Because the more you know, the more you're held accountable by God. I mean, people in some third world country who never really heard the name of Christ didn't look at the creation, though, and say there must be a God. I'd like to know him because God would then reveal himself. But those who never went to church and opened the Bible are going to be judged a lot less severely than somebody who has gone to church, grew up in the church maybe, uh, went to a church that did teach the Bible, but a church that they were playing games in, kidding themselves into thinking, I'm right with God, I'm good. God and I are good. I've heard that. Look, <laughs> we're kind of tearing down some misconceptions, right? Jesus didn't come to give pretty good people a little help getting into heaven. There's a lot of folks think that uh, if heaven was, if you have to scale a fence to get into heaven, okay, heaven's on the other side of a fence, and you're working your hard and your little legs are pumping furiously and you're getting up there, you're almost over, you just need a little help, Jesus comes along and kind of... That's all I need, a little help, Lord. Because they think they're pretty good. Not perfect, but good enough to get into heaven. What they don't know is that Jesus didn't come to help pretty good people get into heaven. 
he came to help, he came to pardon guilty sinners who were already condemned and doomed to spend eternity in hell. Turn to John chapter 3. Most of you know this section. After Jesus said in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. He goes on to say, all Christians know John 3.16. Not all Christians read the next couple verses. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, not going to hell, but he who does not believe is condemned what? Already. There is no case that needs to be decided. You're guilty apart from Christ. It's already been decided your case. The verdict is in. You're condemned already. Because he has not, she has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And by believing, it's not just with your head, it's with your heart making a commitment. A heart commitment is the idea. Turn to Ephesians 1. This is a very important statement by Paul in verse 7. Ephesians 1, verse 7. Talking about Jesus in him... We have redemption through his blood. Listen. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Let me stop there. The Greek word translated forgiveness in Ephesians 1 verse 7 is a Greek word that literally means to send away. To send away. The context is to send away sins. Forgiveness of sins. To send away sins. No doubt Paul had in mind something that took place on, uh, on the um, uh, Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Kippur is a Hebrew word that means the covers. It was the, it was the day of covering, right? And on this national day of repentance and covering, the nation would gather there in Jerusalem. And the, uh, the, the high priest would, would select a couple of goats, cast lots, and, one, and the lot would fall on one of them. That goat was sacrificed for sins. Here's the other thing. The other goat, the high priest laid his hands on the goat and confessed the sins of the nation on this goat. Then one of the priests took the goat and took it out of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives and so far into the Judean wilderness that he finally let it go so far it would never find its way back. Their sins were literally sent away. No doubt that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Again, the word could be translated to send away forgiveness, but it also speaks of canceling a debt or, listen, granting a pardon. Granting a pardon. All could be wrapped up in that idea. Ephesians 1, verse 7, that uh, through his blood Jesus gave us the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He gave us a pardon. Here's the thing about a pardon. It must be accepted if it's going to be a benefit to the one being pardoned. Now, I've read you this before. Let me read it again. True story. Back in 1830, 
George Wilson was convicted of robbing the United States mail and was sentenced to be hanged. President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson. Why? We're not told. But he issued him a full pardon. But Wilson refused to accept it. I mean, that threw the, our leadership into chaos. This has never happened before, where somebody refused to pardon. So the matter went all the way to the Supreme Court. It went to Chief Justice Marshall, who concluded that Wilson, George Wilson, would have to be executed. Here's what Marshall said. A pardon is a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Jesus was able to offer us a pardon. Why? Because he paid the price. Somebody had to pay for sin. Now, we couldn't do it because it takes the innocent to die for the guilty. We're guilty sinners, right? So by Jesus dying in our place, it allowed God to offer the human race a pardon. Your sins are paid for. There's no need for you to spend eternity in hell. I, I want you to spend eternity with me in my kingdom, in heaven. But again, for a person to benefit from God's pardon through the death of his son on their behalf, they have to accept it. They have to accept it. Here's the tragedy. And John tells us this in his first epistle, chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. But not just for ours alone. John was talking about himself and the other disciples. But also for the sins of the whole world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't have to perish in hell but have everlasting life right the tragedy is everybody that has ever lived was pardoned at Calvary's cross but not everybody who has ever lived is going to go to heaven because many folks have rejected the pardon, have rejected the pardon. Only when you receive the pardon, then and only then will Paul's statement in Colossians 2 become a reality in your life. Let me read it to you again, this time out of the New Living Translation, second edition, Colossians 2, 14. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. In other words, our ledger is now stamped to Telestai, paid in full, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. The work is done. The work is done. Let me be clear. Let me be clear. Nothing else needs to be or can be offered in the way of human works to add to what Jesus did on Calvary's cross and paying for our sins. However, there are many churches and groups that teach that what Jesus did on the cross merely, listen, started, started the work of salvation for us. But now we have to finish it. How? You know, by living a good life, going to church, helping out in the local food pantry or whatever. Even though on the cross Jesus said it is finished, these folks feel that what he really meant to say was, it's almost finished. I did my part. I'm rooting for you to do your part, live a good life, finish what I started, 
Because when you live a good life, you know, I made it possible for you to have a good start, but you got to have a good, strong finish. Got to live a good life. And so on. A lot of folks really believe that. Folks, that's the difference between law and grace, between religion and Christianity, right? Listen to me. No doubt the biggest lie the devil has ever fed the human race is the lie that you get to, you get to heaven by being good. That heaven is a reward for deserving people. This is the lie of religion. Mark it down. There's really only two religions, quote-unquote, in the world. The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. That's it. Every religion and religious system in the world, apart from Christianity, falls under the category of human achievement. In other words, what we do for God to earn his favor. Only Christianity, which of course is not a religion, it's a relationship, but you know what I'm talking about. Only Christianity falls into the category of divine accomplishment. In other words, what God has done for us. Someone has said, religion is spelled D-O, as in do, and keep on doing. And maybe someday you'll do enough to earn heaven. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, as in it is finished. Jesus did all the work. Guys, religion comes from man. People say, well, Satan hates religion. Oh, are you kidding me? He does some of his best work through religion. If you can't beat him, join him, right? More people go to hell who are religious than who are atheists, by far. But religion comes from man and is an expression of his pride. What do I mean? Well... Man engages in religion because he wants to show people that he's good enough to work for and eventually earn a place in heaven. In that regard, it is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. Grace means a gift. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, salvation isn't something we earn by our works. It's a free gift we receive by faith. Look, trying to add any work or works, listen, no matter how religious and well-intentioned they might be, trying to add any work or works to the completed work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross as a way of earning our salvation is an abomination in the sight of God. Make no bones about it. It's an abomination in the sight of God who will not share his glory for the work he has done with anybody. You know, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you did. And um, we were taught that religious practices and observances like, you know, going to Mass, the lighting of candles, the keeping of holy days, praying the rosary, abstaining from certain foods uh, during Lent, and other acts of piety would earn us installments of grace, which would eventually accrue, in other words, add up, to where eventually, at one point, the faithful Catholic would earn their salvation. Now, if you fall short, you got to go to purgatory to work, you know, because you, you didn't quite get enough good things in when you lived on the earth, so you got to go to purgatory to finish paying for your sins, right? And by the way, the Catholic Church teaches that no, that if any Catholic says that they have eternal life, they are 
condemned to the lowest hell. They are anathematized. That not even the Pope himself knows if he's done enough good things to say I've earned my salvation. Even though 1 John chapter 5, 11 through 13, John says, we know this. Because of our faith in Christ, we have everlasting life. It's ours. We're not working toward it. It's a free gift that we've received by faith. It's ours the moment we put our faith in Christ, right? But for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church taught, and still teaches, by the way, that we must punish ourselves as a way of paying for our sins to lessen our time in purgatory, which does not exist, by the way. Purgatory was an invention of the Catholic Church. Uh, I think it goes back to 1871. They wanted to control uh, people uh, with fear. And so a, a good way to get money for people to buy mass cards and indulgences and so, you know, mass cards were a great invention by the church that raised over the centuries billions of dollars. And the guilt trip was, look, your, your mom, you love your mom. She's in purgatory. Don't you want to hasten her deliverance from purgatory? Well, sure, who, who wouldn't? Well, buy some mass cards. And the priest will say masses for her and lessen her time in purgatory. That's all a lie. It's not biblical. None of it. But for centuries, we were taught that we were to do good works, um, well, punish ourselves primarily as a way of paying for our sins and lessen our time in purgatory. And so faithful Roman Catholics in some parts of the world uh, would and still do walk barefoot on roads, on roads containing sharp stones while flagellating themselves with whips until their feet and backs were raw and bloody as a way of earning God's favor and meriting heaven. I just read before I came over here today how in the Philippines they had a thing where they showed video of um, Filipino Catholics walking through the streets barefoot feet, sharp rocks, with whips whipping themselves. Their shirts were all shredded. Their backs were dripping with blood. Once a Filipino Catholic said, well, yeah, it's painful, but... If you want God to, uh, how do you put it, uh, if you want God to do you favors, you have to go through it. Even to the point, and you're going to be shocked, I saw it with my own eyes online. Even to the point that some Filipino Catholics actually allow themselves to be crucified as a way of paying for their sins. And they showed one man with literally nails in his hand, he was nailed to a cross in agony. They, they call it um, penancia. Uh, it is the, um, um, it's penitence that you have to suffer so that you pay for your sins. Guys, this is an unmitigated blasphemy against the completed work of Jesus Christ who sent from the cross again, it is finished. And as we, well, why don't you turn to Isaiah 53? We should read that during Good Friday at one point, right? Classic passage on this very subject. But I want you to notice what the Holy Spirit stresses. 
here in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. And let me emphasize who is the focus. Verse 5, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he, of course, Jesus Christ, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. Do you see you in there anywhere? And the Lord has laid upon him and me? Him and us? The iniquity of us? Of course not. Of course not. One pastor said, with regard to God's gift of grace, grace means a gift, salvation. He said, if you add one ounce of works to a billion pounds of grace, you negate grace. In other words, you forfeit grace. In other words, God will not offer you salvation by grace anymore if you try to add to it a free gift. God is offering to you a free gift. Okay, how much do I owe you? First of all, you can't pay for this gift. It goes beyond anything you could offer God in the way of payment. But he's offering it freely. But if you try to earn it in any way, shape, or form by adding anything to it, God says you can't have it. You forfeit grace. I will not offer you grace anymore. And Paul said in Galatians 5, you divorce yourself from the completed work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Which means that what Jesus did in paying for your sins will not help you at all if, again, you try to add uh, anything in the way of works to what Jesus did as a way of helping him, quote-unquote, purchase your salvation. A lot of folks think that, yeah, Jesus, he paid most of it, but i got to get in there and pay some of it. Now, this is a big thing with Mary. Uh, there's a church in Italy, Catholic church, but a big cross out fr outside in front. On one side of the cross is Jesus hanging. On the other side of the cross is Mary hanging. Now you can go online and Google it. Because it wasn't just Jesus who paid for our sins. Mary did also. Now, it's not like 50-50, okay. It's like he paid 80 and she paid 20, but she was in there. Well, there's a lot of people that kind of have that mentality about themselves. Jesus did most of it, but I'm on the other side hanging there on the cross because I've got to help to pay for my sins. Folks, that is an absolute lie of the devil. Paul hits this very hard in the book of Galatians. I'll just quote, I'll paraphrase Galatians 2.21. Paul said, if human works, ritual, ceremony, sacrifices, etc. could save us, then Christ died in vain. Think about that. If we could get to heaven by being good and keeping religious rituals and ceremonies and feast days, then why didn't Jesus tell us that when he came to earth? Hey, here's the good news. I've come from the Father. Wanted me to tell you, you want to get to heaven, just be a really good person, work real hard, and you'll make it. He didn't say that at all, right? <laughs> Not at all. That's blasphemy. Again, seeking to add anything in the way of human works to earn salvation is, again, is blasphemous. 
Now, we just have talked about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Listen. And that, not of yourselves. What not of yourself? Salvation. You, didn't, you can't earn it. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. You just accept a gift. It's the gift of God. Not of your works, lest anyone should boast. God didn't want people in heaven boasting how worthy they were to be here. You know? Yeah, Jesus, but, you know? I know he did most of it, but, you know, I, I'm here because I was a really good person. I really finished what he started. God doesn't want that. He wants to get the glory for the work he has done. And he won't share his glory with anyone. The Bible's very clear about that. Guys, listen, don't ignore or even worse, try to add to what Jesus did on the cross in paying for your sins. Jesus is saying to you, I have paid in full your debt. Now come to me by faith and be saved. But listen carefully as we bring this to a close. Listen carefully. It isn't enough to simply believe that Jesus is God. That's important. John 8, 24, if you don't believe Jesus is Almighty God, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's an essential doctrine of salvation. I mean, James says in chapter 2, verse 19, but even the devil and his demons believe that and tremble. But it isn't enough simply to believe that Jesus is God who died on the cross for your sins and three days later rose from the dead. That's important information. But again, the devil and his demons believe all of that because they were there to see it all happen. The virgin birth, Jesus living a sinless life and working miracles and then eventually going to the cross and three days later rising from the dead. The, the devil and his demons were there to see it all happen in real time. So what's left? Well, it's not just believing, John 1, 12. It's not just believing with your head. It's receiving Jesus into your heart, making a commitment to him. Saving faith is making a commitment to Christ. Like marriage. That's why the Bible says he's the bridegroom or the bride. Just like when you made a commitment to the person you married that day. That puts you into oneness. It made your marriage legal and meaningful. So a lot of folks date Jesus. They've grown up dating him their whole lives. What do I mean? Going to church, Awanas, Sunday school, youth camp, right? But they've never made a commitment. The problem with too many churchgoers is they keep dating Jesus perpetually and never make a commitment to him where now he is their Lord, their King, their everything. You've got to receive him as your personal Savior. If you're going to benefit from his sacrifice on the cross for your sins, as, listen, the Lamb of God. Look, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he wasn't implying, he was not implying, that the whole world would automatically be saved because of what Jesus did on that cross. Look, Jesus was crucified on Passover. You realize that, right? Jesus was crucified on Passover. There is a law of, in hermeneutics, the, the science of Bible interpretation, 
There's a law that we've mentioned before called the law of first mention. When something is something, uh, a subject, a topic that is um, uh, serious, I mean, um, not just serious, but um, important, like worship, atonement, marriage. Study the first time that concept is introduced in the Bible because it becomes the prototype for understanding that concept throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. How about the Passover? How about the Passover? Turn to Exodus 12. Now listen, you have heard me talk about this before. And I'm going to read this out of the New King James Version, which, as we all know, is the inspired, anointed version. <laughs> so if you're reading out of something else and doesn't read this way, chuck it and get yourself a New King James. All right. All right. But in Exodus 12, verse 1, let me read it to you. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is about the first Passover now. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of beginnings of, of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it According to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make uh, your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it onto the doorposts and onto the lintel of the house where they eat it. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that, on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will listen, pass over the feast of Passover. I will pass over you, and the plague, the angel of death, shall not kill your firstborn. I will not destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice the progression. Nothing is in our Bibles by accident. If every jot and tittle, or in other words, if every dot of the I cross of the T means something, well, we should pay attention when we read a passage of Scripture. Notice the progression. A lamb, the lamb, and then your lamb. That's no accident. This happens to be how many in the world think of Jesus, the Lamb of God. There are many that believe Jesus is a Lamb, a Lamb. They believe that Jesus is one of many roads that lead to God. He is a way. Even though Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am what? A way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. But there are many who believe Jesus is a lamb, one of many roads that lead to heaven. Others believe that Jesus is the lamb. They really do. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, 
the one and only Savior of the world, the only way to heaven. They actually believe that. Maybe they grew up in church and went to Awanas when they were young. So they know the gospel. They know the gospel. But they stop short of committing their lives to Jesus, often because they're living in sin. They don't want to give up whatever life they're living in the way of sin to uh, receive Christ, because they know. If I really make Jesus my Savior, He's the Savior. But if I really take it to the step He wants me to take it to, or I make a commitment to Him, i got to give up this lifestyle. And I'm not ready to stop sowing my wild oats. Okay. Um, they're not willing to get... Yeah, that, that was kind of my testimony as a Roman Catholic. Although, in all my years of Roman Catholicism, nobody ever explained the gospel to me in, in truth. They, you know, I, I, I was taught, you know, you, 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 know, you um, believe in Jesus, and you go to Mass, you light candles, you pray rosaries, you do all kinds of religious observances, and you will earn heaven someday. It was Jesus and me. Nobody ever told me it's just Jesus. He did all the work. We, we don't help God do his work. He doesn't need our help. You try to help him, you forfeit the gift, as we said, right? Well, that was kind of my testimony as a Roman Catholic. I believed in Jesus. I believed he was the Savior, the Son of God, the only way to heaven. But I wasn't saved. Because he was the Lamb. Number three, you must make Jesus your Lamb. If his blood is going to protect you from the judgment that is coming. Even as Paul called Jesus our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. In other words, Jesus in his earthly life not only observed the feast. He fulfilled the feast in his death. Jesus was the Lamb of God, which means he was without spot. In other words, he was without original sin. He didn't have an earthly father. He only had an earthly mother. So he's the Lamb of God <clears throat> without spot, without original sin, without blemish, which means acquired sin. He lived his whole life in it, sinlessly. Who died on the cross. And for us to have the judgment of God pass over us, for us to be saved and not go to hell, we have to apply his blood not to the doorpost and lintel of our house, but to our hearts, right? By faith. And this will cause the judgment of God to pass over us just as the judgment passed over each house in Egypt where the blood of the Lamb was applied. Guys, as I said earlier as we finish, the title of tonight's message is Good Friday, the day that changed the world. But listen. It doesn't matter that Good Friday changed the world if it hasn't changed your world. Let me say it again. It doesn't matter if Good Friday changed the world if it hasn't changed your world. Let's close with this scripture. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, let's pick it up in verse 15. This is the morning that Jesus is standing before Pilate. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that they had, the chief priests and all, had handed him over to Pilate because of envy. Verse 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said to him, Let him be crucified. First of all, let me say, make no mistake about it. Jesus wasn't on trial that day in Pilate's court. Who was? Pilate. Jesus wasn't on trial that day in Pilate's court. Pilate was on trial. He didn't know that. In that regard, Pilate becomes an example of the place every human being finds themselves in, finds him or herself uh, in when presented the gospel. And that is this. What am I going to do with Jesus who is called Christ? Each person has to decide for themselves what they're going to do with Jesus. Each person. It's an individual decision. You can't get to heaven because your mom and dad were Christians. Or because you're born into a Christian nation, so to speak. It's been said that God has no grandkids. He only has children. Because you don't get to heaven by the virtue of someone else's faith. But the one thing, guys, and I'll close with this, the one thing you must never do with regard to what you do with Jesus the one thing you must never do is let the crowd make the decision for you. That was Pilate's grave mistake. He said to the crowd, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Too many Christians are letting the crowd make that decision for them because they don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to commit social suicide. They don't want their friends to abandon them and call them a Bible thumper or a religious weirdo. So too many young people especially are letting the crowd make that decision for them, but it's not just young people. Adults who are climbing the corporate ladder don't want to seem like a Bible thumping weirdo because they might not get that next promotion. So they let the crowd basically decide what they should do with Jesus. Don't ever let the crowd make that decision for you. Whatever you do with Christ, if you're going to accept him or reject him, you make sure you make that decision. You make that decision. There's too much at stake. Don't ever let anybody else make that decision for you, what you're going to do about Jesus. Because I'm telling you, when you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, your friends don't matter. Your friends on this earth are not going to matter. All that's going to matter is what you did with Jesus yourself. Amen? I want to close in prayer, but I realize that there is a lot of people watching online that can't come up here so we can pray with them. Also, Calvary Radio has picked up our feed tonight and is broadcasting this service to the entire Midwest part of the country. So there's a lot of people who, are, who have just heard the gospel that may want to receive Jesus as their Savior. If you'd like to pray with me, just pray in your heart. I'll, I'll, I'll pray in your heart. Repeat after me.
And uh, just be sincere in your heart to the Lord. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that you died for sinners. I know that you died for me. I believe you're the Son of God who came down from heaven to pay my debt. And I thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness that has paid my debt. But now, Lord, I want to make that commitment to you. I'm asking you to come into my heart and take control of my life. I want you to be the king of my life. I want to live my life for you from this moment on. And so, Lord, I invite you to come inside and take up residence in my heart. And, Lord, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, giving to me the power that I need to live for you and to serve you from this day forward. I thank you, Lord, for coming inside and being my Savior. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer and have a lot of questions, come on up here so we can talk with you. And God bless you guys. May the Lord give you an awesome, well, weekend. We're not done. This is Passion Week. As somebody has said, you know, um, well, how does it put? Um, this is this is Friday. This is Friday. Sunday's coming. We'll have our normal services eight thirty and ten thirty. So come on back. God bless you guys. Have a great evening. <laughs>